Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 2nd, 2017. This is episode 2109 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a listener call show because it is a Thursday. I got a bunch of great calls lined up. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, one, before we even get into the calls, I have a little... Um, an advertisement that came to my attention today on YouTube while gathering some information uh, that pertains to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and retirement accounts. It coincides with a question that was asked yesterday in the article that I published about Bitcoin and the depth of ignorance that some people have in regard to cryptocurrency that was spawned by a blog comment. Um, when I get to it, I think you'll understand it, but it's basically... a, a a call out to put retirement money into Bitcoin. I'll give you my thoughts on that, why I don't like IRAs and things like that for Bitcoin at all. But I'll also tell you why this type of thing is good news for the people that are holding Bitcoin. All right, so it'll make sense when I cover it. I have a question on storing bulk herbs and spices and blends thereof because, you know, I recommend you buy like, you know, a half a pound to a pound of something at a time rather than a couple ounces because it saves you money and you can buy a higher quality product and pay less for it per ounce. Uh, so that results in like a pound of oregano. What the hell do we do with it? I'll tell you what I do. I have a call about the Alta electric dirt bike. Guys, I'm impressed with this thing. And it just kind of shows you the progression of electric vehicles and how they're going to impact our lives in the future. I have a question on choosing a chainsaw. I have a, a, a question that, well, it's not really a question. It's a comment on a post on Facebook from like two months ago. Uh, a call that kind of fell way into the back door of SpeakPipe, and I, I, I dug it out today. And it's the basic argument is that you benefit from socialism. In this case, applied to disasters. And I'll let the caller speak for himself. And I'll tell you kind of my response to stuff like this. Um, I have a question on ideas for a preparedness housewarming gift. And the one the guy has come up with I think might be the best answer. Uh, and it has me kind of jazzed up with some thoughts of something I might be putting out, like uh, coming into not next week when we're doing the event, but the following week. I might come out with a... Uh, a uh, whole kind of like, here's the stuff I would recommend you put in to do it at like 50 bucks, 100 bucks, etc. Uh, but basically an idea for a preparedness housewarming gift for people that aren't prepared uh, minded, preparedness minded, right? So like to kind of get them started or something, but they would still like, like even though they're not a prepper in their mind, they'd be like, oh, that's nice. And then that gets the ball rolling. And I mean, it's one less person you have to worry about during a, you know, a, a bad time uh, trying to like prop them all the way up. And I got a question about monetizing a blog, and specifically from the angle of doing it with cryptocurrency. And I'll, I'll explain why it really doesn't matter what you're monetizing and as far as what you're going to take payments. And I will try to answer the crypto question, but I want to talk more about the concept of how we monetize our content creation and, and what we do to get that done. All that and more in just a bit before we uh, get into all that. Let's take a look at our uh, two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Let me tell you what I was doing last night. I, I finally got over this throat thing, and I put out a great uh, herbal product today, actually, that you'll hear about in an item of the day that's not from Western Botanicals. I just don't think they have 
the equivalent of it, and that's why I go there. Because I always go to Western Botanicals first. First, because they, they give me a 25% discount, not because I'm Jack Spirico, but because I have their premium membership because I am a member of my own MSB, of course, right? Uh, and they have great stuff. But what I was digging around looking for last night, I couldn't find it. I'm about to order some unless I find it today, is my deep heat ointment from Western Botanicals. One of my favorite products there. Uh, I have a shoulder injury. goes all the way back to when I was in the military, an injury that I uh, incurred, I think I was 19 years old. So we're looking at 20-something uh, years, right? Uh, it, it, uh, it, it acts up from time to time, and with this cold, I've been sleeping on my side, and I slept on my arm, and I really jacked up my shoulder. And I was digging through my cabinets looking for that DP ointment. Uh, I ended up using some Dr. Christopher's uh, tissue and uh, bone on it, which has helped a lot. But, man, that deep, deep heat ointment soothes. And, and they have tons of products like that. And what I love about Western Botanicals is, number one, mission-oriented. So instead of their goal being to sell more you know, herbs and, and, and herbal preparations than any other company in, in the country, their, their goal, their mission is to put an herbalist in every home in America, to empower people, to educate people. And then, of course, that grows the market, and then they, you know, rising tide floats all boats, and that'll be good for their business. It's a, a very solid business plan and a very service-oriented one. You should check them out. They've been a sponsor with us for a very long time and a great supporter of the MSB, and they have real people that will pick up the phone and talk to you if you call them up and ask them for help. So check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. But before you buy, if you're an MSB member, remember, you get their premium membership for free as a member and at half price for additional subsequent years. And, and that is a great deal, man. If you use a, little, you know, a lot of herbals like I do, a 25% discount on the top quality stuff is huge. Next up today, ready-made resources. Like, so all of the resources you need for your preps, other than herbals, basically, I would say, you'll find it at ready-made resources. It really is like the Walmart of preparedness. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how much this little company out of Tennessee provides. Robert over there is a great dude. He really is. He's, he's, I've never been able to take him up on it. He's, he's offered me the ability to come stay at his place and hang out sometime. He's, he's that kind of guy. Um, but if you can think of it, from vacuum sealing to long-term storage stuff like, uh, like O2 absorbers, desk kits, uh, mylar bags, you know, 12-volt stuff to work with your solar and wind projects, stuff to build solar and wind projects, tactical, practical, you name it. They've got it all, long-term storage food like Mountain House and, and Yoders and stuff like that. They've got everything, everything. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com, the company that does what they say and says what they do. From there, let's take a look at the year in history. It's a rather long segment today, but there's a lot going on. We're wrapping up the year of four emperors, which is year 69 AD. Get some historical perspective, because that always helps you have more perspective on, on the current times in the future. Uh, so the title of today's segment by David Verne, The Year of Four Emperors, comes to an end. In late July, the entire Eastern Empire and the Balkan provinces declare their support for Vespian. Vespian stays in Alexandria to oversee the logistics and be ready with reinforcements, while the governor of Syria, Marcinius, marches to the Balkans to link up with the legions there. The five Balkan legions who have sworn their loyalty to Otho were being punished by Vitalis and are impatient after one of their officers, Marcus Antonius, agrees with them. They elect him as their general. Without any authorization from Vespian or Mercinius, Antonius leads the legions to Italy. When Vitalis heard about the enemy army wasn't far away, he sent Cassina to defend northern Italy, 
but Cassina had different plans. Cassina had been losing his political battle with Valens and is considering defecting to Vespian. He meets Antonius's army, but despite having a numerical advantage, begins negotiations with Antonius. After some time, Cassina convinces his officers to defect to the winning side with him, but when his soldiers learn of his plans, they storm his tent and throw him in chains. The army leaves in the night, retreating to Crismona, the main city in northern Italy, to await reinforcements from Rome. On October 24th, opposing cavalry forces encountered each other and began skirmishing. As further units arrived on the scene in late afternoon, Antonius's army didn't want to retreat, and uh, the Vitellian army refused to withdraw since reinforcements would arrive soon. This quickly became a night battle, one of the rarest occurrences in the ancient world. Bitter and indecisive fighting followed, especially since both sides wore the same uniforms. How do you know who to kill there, huh? By morning, the battle was still undecided when the Vitellian army saw one of Antonius's legions turn east and greet reinforcements. There were no reinforcements. The legion had done this, had adopted the local eastern custom of greeting the sun every morning. This misunderstanding caused the Vitellians to retreat back to Cremona. Even though Antonius's army was exhausted, they launched a ferocious assault on the walls, causing the town to surrender. After the surrender, the officers were unable to control their men, and the vicious army sacked the town, almost completely destroying it. Cassina now defected at this point, and Vitalis, other general Valens, had been captured at sea by former members of the Praetorian Guard. After these victories, more governors began supporting Vespian, and Antonius, hoping for a peaceful settlement, sent a letter to Vitalis to resign, promising him mercy, money, and a villa in the country. Vitalis, especially after the loss of his two advisors, is more than willing to agree to the terms uh, and finish negotiations with Vespian's brother Sabinus, who was living in Rome at the time. Vitalis made a speech announcing his resignation, but this didn't go over well with his supporters, who were very upset that he was abandoning them now. His own Praetorian guard surrounded him, marched him back to the palace. Sabinus thought that everything had gone according to plan and made his way to the forum with an armed guard prepared to accept the surrender in Vespian's name. Instead, a skirmish erupts, with Sabinus and his supporters barricading themselves in the Capitoline Hill. They were eventually captured and killed, but the cost of burning down the temp but at the cost of burning down the Temple of Jupiter. Seeing no other option, Antonius leads his army into an assault on Rome, and after breaking through two gates, they find Vitalis and execute him. He was 54 years old and had reigned for eight months. Mushanus arrives day, the day after and begins laying the groundwork for Vespian's administration. The year of four emperors was now over. My take by David Verne. Since Antonius had led his army into Italy without orders, Vespian was able to denounce the attack of Rome and the sacking of Cremona. He did spend a lot of time trying to rebuild Cremona, but it never rose to its former glory. Thanks in no, part, no small part to Masinius, Vespian was greeted warmly by Rome when he arrived in mid-70 AD. It would take more than a year of civil war to destroy the empire, and Vespian continued ruling through the Principate system, where the emperor was portrayed as just another man and worked for the good of the empire. And I will tell you that our friend Vespian will be emperor for about 10 years. And that will be a long time, all the way up until a cat named Marcus Aurelius shows up on the scene. You're going to see emperors come and go, not in the same year, but pretty damn quick over the next bit of time after uh, after uh, this Vespian cat checks out. What I see in like the modern-day lesson here, 
And this is something politicians don't understand. Leaders lead at the pleasure of those they lead. Now, we have been so dumbed down and so conditioned to be obedient freaking sheep. Bah. That's all I see anywhere. I look at it, a crowd of people is like, bah, bah, bah. That's it. I mean, seriously, that's all I, I'm like, my God. But in the end, all those sheep are not actually sheeple. They really are people. And, and what's happened is their underlying capacity to accept their own responsibility has been put to sleep, but it hasn't been killed. And that's the case in most societies, all the way back here in Rome. You know, hey, we, we just have to have a emperor. Okay, bah, bah, right? We have to have one. We've always had one. We don't have any other way. Bah. Uh, but in the end, like, when it comes down to it, no matter who the leader is, the people being led get to discuss because there's only more of them. So there's two instances here of this. So the one general's like, I see the way the wind's blowing. So I'm going to get my officers together. We're going to defect over, join this guy, link up our legions, and go take over for Vespian. And his men are like, yeah, screw that. And they go off and do whatever the hell they want. All right, we're still fighting. And then, you know, you got you got uh, the amp, the, the, cur- the, the there's so many of them. <laughs> Vitalis is the guy I'm thinking. So you got Vitalis, the current emperor, when all this shit storm started today. And, and he's like, I, I can have villa in the country? Like, remember I said I would take the deal, the last one, if I was either side? But he, I can have, because he sees which way the wind's blowing. He, okay, like, I'll resign, and we'll have a truce, and I'll leave. And his people are like, hey, wait a minute. We put our ass on the line for you. You're not leaving. And they grab his ass and throw him back in the palace and say, you're going to be emperor whether you want to be emperor or not. Now, I'm thinking back, and I'm looking at all this, and I'm thinking if I was an emperor in Rome and I'd study history and I were Vitalis at this point, I would have been like, yeah, sure, let me tell you how this is going to work. I'm going to act like I'm still emperor. And I'm going to find a reason to travel somewhere with only my most trusted aides, and when I get the hell out of here, I'm going to send notice of my resignation, leaving the empire without an emperor, except this new named emperor who has the legions and the loyalty. And then you guys sort it out. But no, no, he tried to do it the way, you know, above board, and it just didn't work. And, and there's a point at which in this country that kind of shit's going to happen if people are continuously ignored. And, and I think people are starting to feel like it's like when you get too close to the, like the, the amp and the microphone with the electric guitar and you get that feedback loop. That's how a lot of people are feeling right now. And there's a point where people snap. And that's something that people in charge need to keep in mind. And they seldom do. And in this day and age, they seem to feel very protected by their cocoon of the oligarchy. I think at some point, if they're not careful, that cocoon might be ruptured. My thoughts on that. All right, and with that, I want to get into the uh, main subject today. I want to play something for you right now. This is a, a commercial that was on YouTube. It's about two minutes long, and it's on Bitcoin. And I'm not going to comment on it before you hear it. The only comment I want to make, I guess, is I am not endorsing this. One more time. Jack Spirico is not endorsing the product you're about to hear a commercial for. I'm playing it for you for informational purposes. My follow-up commentary will make that abundantly clear, but I do think it's a good thing for Bitcoin price long-term. 
Here we go. Cryptocurrency is taking off as a retirement investment opportunity. It's a great way to diversify your retirement portfolio and protect against having all your assets tied to the stock market. With traditional money, officials can just print off more money whenever they want, causing inflation. But Bitcoin has a cap for creation. Once it has been reached, no more coins can be made. And that means no inflation. There are also tax benefits to investing in a cryptocurrency IRA. You'll never pay taxes on capital gains. You can take advantage of these great benefits and get started investing with BitcoinIRA.com. To protect your investments from thieves and hackers, Bitcoin IRA has an exclusive relationship with BitGo, the leader in multi-signature encryption technology. No other company can match its security. BitGo generates three security keys, keeping them in separate, cold storage locations. That means your security keys aren't kept on the Internet and hackers have no way to access your keys. It's the safest method of storage. Unlike other companies, which may store your keys offshore or in a dangerous hot storage wallet online, BitcoinIRA.com also requires government-issued identification and voice verification to transfer and purchase funds. No other crypto investment company offers this level of security. Most only offer one key and they require you to store it yourself. Not safe. If a security key in your possession gets lost or damaged, your investment is gone forever. With Bitcoin IRA, you'll never lose your keys and investment. BitcoinIRA.com is the only turnkey, full-service company that walks you through the process of investing, makes sure it is IRS compliant, protects your investment, and offers $1 million insurance on all transactions. Don't take our word for it. Here are just a few companies who have featured BitcoinIRA.com. Ready to invest in cryptocurrency for your retirement? BitcoinIRA.com is ready to help. Um... I have mixed emotions about this ad. Let's start out with, like, there's the, that's just marketing from, you know, Paul Wheaton's famous line. No, that's just marketing. <clears throat> I just hate companies, but I know most companies do this, even good companies, that just spout bullshit about the truth, I guess. With the, the very opening line that, Bitcoin is taking off as a retirement security. No, it's not. No, it's not. It might. But right now, I mean, what percentage of Americans do you think have Bitcoin in their retirement savings? Taking off. It's like, it just makes me think of that stupid show, House Hunters. The, the real estate market in whatever freaking town we're in is heating up. No, it's not. You say that every freaking time. It can't always be true. It's just bullshit. Everyone's getting involved. No, they're not. I'm not. I'm part of everyone. I'm not there. Therefore, everyone's not. I mean, just that kind of marketing jades me. Let me tell you something, guys. I'll tell you why they do it. Because it freaking works. It was very professionally done, and all of the technical explanation of what Bitcoin is was accurate. And, and marketing it as a deflationary currency against an inflationary currency, i.e. a hedge against the dollar, brilliant, part of why I own it. So I, I think there's some, some validity to it. When I say I don't endorse this, this is what I mean. I know nothing of this company. Um, I'm not exactly thrilled with the fact that it requires government ID to move my freaking Bitcoin. That's kind of counter to the point of Bitcoin. But it doesn't matter here. And I'll tell you why. It's why I don't like Bitcoin married to IRA. However, in the future, I may change my stance on that. I'll talk about that in a second, too. 
Okay, so Bitcoin to me is a lot like gold and silver. Is it anonymous? It depends on how you acquired it, where it came from, how it got there. Is the address that you received it at public? Has it gone through any type of coin mixing application? Uh, was it always Bitcoin? Did you mine it as something completely anonymous like Zcash and then send it to a Bitcoin address that can't really be associated with you? So somebody can go, yeah, there's some Bitcoin there, but we don't know who owns Like there's a lot of ways to make Bitcoin highly anonymous. And I don't even like the word anonymous because it sounds dirty. Private. I think wanting your finances to be private from everybody, including the government, is perfectly normal. I don't think it's nefarious. It's the only thing drug dealers want. And, and Bitcoin has that ability. Okay? Not as well as some of the other cryptos, but it is the best performing, longest lived, scarce ass asset cryptocurrency that also has some of that going for it. In other words, you can move it. You can put it in a paper wallet with a mnemonic device. They can shake you down, do whatever they want to you. They can't get it. They can't get it. Let me explain one more time. They can't get it. And you could get off a plane, use that mnemonic device, and claim it in Paris, France, or Tokyo tomorrow morning, and they can't prevent you from doing it. But if you put it in an IRA, you take one of the most private forms of wealth, and you make it public and highly regulated. But if you're going to do that anyway, it doesn't matter that you're going to have your ID and voice recognition, because it's going to be completely wired back to you anyway. But it makes it subject to the point that If something were to happen in the world of Bitcoin and the government wanted to seize it or some shit, it's right there with a big target on it, where otherwise you, you, you can't. I'm sorry, it's not yours. You don't know where it is. I can't help you. Right? You can even know what, it, you can know what address it's in. You still can't get it. I can still move it. Unless you have my hands tied, I can still move it. Right? So you've ruined that by going into an IRA. But the other side of an IRA, if you do this as a Roth, There's something that has the potential of a Bitcoin. And we have guys like John McAfee that says he will eat his, insert experlative here, right? He'll eat his, he'll eat his penis, and he used the other word for it. If, um, <laughs> and I don't even know why that bothers me to say it that way, because I can say dick other ways. It doesn't bother me. But say it that way, he'll, your own, nah, right? <laughs> I mean, I can tell a guy that pisses me off, go eat a bag of dicks and die. But I just don't want to, I don't know why I don't want to say it. Anyway, he says he will eat his own dick, If um, if if Bitcoin doesn't hit fifty thousand dollars in ten in like like five years or something like that, is he right? I don't know. But but here's why I think this is a good thing for Bitcoin, even if we never do anything with it out of this group. There are trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars in private retirement accounts out there. Just rolling a couple hundred billion of that which is a fraction of a fraction of the whole, into cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, would have a marked upward pressure effect on Bitcoin. Let me explain something about Bitcoin. I think that a lot of people don't really understand. How few, like this whole Tulip Media shit, and it's in a bubble and all. There's such a small number of people that own Bitcoin. There's nothing mainstream about it. There's about, the best guess by doing audits of the blockchain How many accounts there are, wallets, you know, figuring out something that's lost and all. There's about 3.3 million people that own some Bitcoin. Some of them might be Bitcoin billionaires, and some of them own like 200 bucks. But there's 3.3 million people. That sounds like a lot. But in the world, that's a fraction of 1% of people in the world own Bitcoin. 
I would say that there is probably less than that percentage of Americans that own Bitcoin. So what happens if Bitcoin really does take off and becomes something that the average person wants to have a couple Bitcoins or a Bitcoin or is going to put a few thousand dollars into this novelty within their retirement savings? What happens to the price of Bitcoin? I've said this before. What happens if 5% of America wants to own one Bitcoin? Five, just, just 5%. So you can look at 100 people, 5 out of 100 want to own one Bitcoin in America. It's not possible. It can't be done. The price of Bitcoin would probably go well beyond $50,000 if just 5% of Americans decided they wanted to own one. And they would never own one. They would never be able to own one. They might have $10,000 or $20,000, and it might be a quarter of a Bitcoin at that point. When I talk like this, you have to understand... There also could be some kind of major development in the world that could crash Bitcoin into oblivion tomorrow morning. It's risk capital. It's another reason I don't like risking your retirement from it. However, I do look at it this way. Let's say that grand, that grand um, gamble were to pay off. The concept of putting a few thousand dollars a year over a couple of years into a Roth IRA that's holding Bitcoin so that 100% of the appreciation is not taxable. And... As long, and this is what I would have to have in a, in a, in a, a, a Roth IRA, a self-directed or otherwise. I don't care. However it's designed. I would have to have liquidity. I would have to have liquidity within it where I could convert the Bitcoin to cash and thereby other securities. Because it may make a lot of sense at some point to go, gee, Bitcoin's gone up to $100,000 Bitcoin. It could happen. I'm, I know you think I'm nuts. And if I told you it could have went to $5,000 when it was $100, you would have thought I was nuts too. Okay, Maybe I should capture some of that equity. Or the government starts rattling around. Well, I might exit some of that position at that point and convert it to another security. And when they want to go do whatever they want to do to get involved with you know, messing with publicly not, you know, notified Bitcoin, I don't have any. I have cash or I have a stock or an ETF or something like that. So I, I think there's potential here. But I, I'm not ready to say, like, this is the company I would use or anything like that. And, and here's my rules. Like, I, I'm making these as I go to try to fit an evolving paradigm. I say 5% to 10% of your net wealth should be in gold and silver. I don't know what percentage of your net wealth should be in Bitcoin, but I know it shouldn't be major. I would say that only risk capital goes into Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies at present time. Period. The end. Infinity sign. Infinity signed. Okay? But if you were going to say, I want to put some of my retirement into Bitcoin or other crypto, I would say, I'm not giving you the number you should use. I'm giving you the cap of the number you should absolutely never exceed right now in the current state of affairs of 5%. So if you had $100,000 in your retirement account and you wanted to put five of it into cryptocurrency within a, some sort of retirement vehicle like a Roth IRA, okay. And uh, one more time on our IRAs and 401ks. If you have the option between a Roth and a conventional and you choose a conventional, you hate money, you hate money, you hate money, you hate freaking money. And I'm not going to explain it again and you can make up any bullshit you want, the Roth always wins. In fact, the better your, your your investments do, the more the Roth wins. And it means more flexibility and the ability to withdraw your contributions penalty-free. And if you don't understand that, I'm done preaching to the, preaching on that one. I do want to say this, though, because I've talked about cryptocurrency here for like eight, nine minutes at the beginning of the day's show. 
I get emails from time to time. I always you talk less about cryptocurrency, more about guns, more about gardening, more about this, more about that. Got one today. And what I said is, hey, look, it, the majority of the discussions on cryptocurrency come on shows like this, feedback shows. I have think I have done one standalone Just Jack show on cryptocurrency and a very small handful of interview shows. And we've had some cryptocurrency questions for our expert council member that covers cryptocurrency. Shocking. But the majority of the discussion comes on the Monday shows and the Thursday shows. Why? It's what you guys ask me about. If you want more stuff talked about in regards to guns, call in or email in for the email shows and ask me about guns. If you want more on gardening, do it for that. Whatever it is you want to know more about, get in the game. And the guy that emailed me this morning and said that, he does. He asks a lot of questions. Have nothing to do. And you know what? Kiernan, you're out there. You get a lot of them answered too, don't you? I probably answer one question every two weeks for you. Well, if you feel the way Kiernan does, that you want less crypto and more something else, I am all about that. I'm about serving this audience. Get in the game. Step up to the plate. Pick up a bat and take a swing at sending me a question or a call. If you call in, there is like I would say it's 50-50. If you call in, you'll get in on the air. And it's probably better than that. If you send me an email, it's probably 10%. So send me 10, and you'll probably get one or two, or if they're really good, three or four. If you're like Kiernan and he has great stuff, you might get one every other week. Get involved if you want more diversity in the content. I want more diversity in the content. I serve you guys. I serve at your pleasure, like, like leaders are supposed to. All right. So, And I'm not even saying I'm a leader, but I have leadership in my heart, and That's what I've always believed, that you serve the people that you lead, and that transcends into all things. So if it's not leadership, then it's as the host of a show that you listen to, I serve your interest. Well, I can only serve that interest if you make it known. And saying, well, I want more about this crap over here, but not saying what specifically you're looking for and not participating, then I don't have anything to respond with. I take all the questions every week. I look at them. And I do my best for you. I hope you, hope you like that. Now, the good news is there's only one more time we're going to talk about crypto today, and that's the last question of the day, and it ain't going to have like a dominant place in the answer. All the rest is about other stuff because people called and asked. So the first one here is about storing herbs and spices. We'll go ahead and listen to the call, and I'll come back with my answer. Hi, Jack. I have a question about uh, how you store your herbs and your spices. Uh, details are, uh, I've bought a couple of your items of the day, and uh, when, when you get a, a pound of oregano, it's a lot more than I use uh, within a month. Um, so I'm wondering how you store these before you use them up. Do you have a spice rack, or do you have mason jars, do you vacuum seal things, uh, etc.? And similarly, I always see you uh, with all sorts of, of uh, spice blends and herb blends and whatnot. Do you Mix those uh, every time you make them, or do you keep those in storage somewhere? Um, and if so, how do you uh, store and organize those? Uh, I appreciate your input. Uh, help me organize my pantry. Okay, so this is easy. So I'm going to split it in half. I'm going to start out what I, what I do with bulk herbs and spices in general. Uh, what I've settled on is I use, I guess they're half-pint jars, the little jelly jars. For all my spices, which I think is great because you can get labels for them and put a label on the front and write what they are. You can write on the lid what they are, and that way you know what everything is. 
And my what I and I, maybe someday I should do a tour of my kitchen when I actually have it cleaned up. That won't that won't be for a couple of weeks. But we had some pretty cool uh, drawers put in uh, when we had our cabinets redone. And basically they're they're on the very far wall by the stove, and there's a little narrow space in there. It's only about ten inches wide. And these little narrow long drawers that pull out, and there's shelves in there, and pint half pint jelly jars fit in there perfectly. And then we can just have them all lined up like a spice rack, but it goes away. And that keeps them in order, which is something difficult for me. So I, I put most of the stuff that I use into those little jelly jars. And I just have them there, and I use them as needed. When I order a bunch of stuff, let's say I order, a, 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 I don't know, a, a pound of rosemary tomorrow. Well, when it comes in, I'll get out my canning funnel, and I'll get out a bunch of those little jelly jars, and I'll fill them all up with about, you know, leave about an inch of space. I'll put all the little lids on them, put the rings on them, just hand tight, and I'll put them in my uh, my vacuum canner, which is basically a, a dry canner for ball jars. And so I can do them all in one shot. And so I'll throw them all in there, I'll turn the pump on, but it'll go up to you know the space level vacuum, and when it gets there, I'll turn off the pump, and I'll open the thing, and it'll go, and they'll all seal, except for one. Assuming I need one, I'll leave one out and I'll label it and I'll put it in my countertop. And then I just save the boxes that the pint jars come in and I put them back in there. And that way I can carry them upstairs. And I have a whole bunch of shelving in. I have like these two really big giant closets. Like the, you, They look like they're going to be okay size closets. You open them and go, where the hell is all the space coming? They're giant, right? And we keep a lot of our storage food and stuff up there. I'll take them up there and I'll stack them all together. So they're all in one place. So all the rosemary's in one place, all the peppers in one place, all the oregano's in one place, all the basil's in one place. You got it, right? And what I'll do is I just keep using it out of that little jar. And when I get when I pull that jar down, I'll go, oh, it's almost empty. So then when I go upstairs, there's no repackaging. I just take the new jar and put it where the old jar went, throw the old jar in the dishwasher, and it goes back into the empty jar storage area. And, and that's that's all I did. And that way I'm constantly rotating it. And when I go upstairs, then there's like two, or depends on what it is, like some stuff, a, a pint, half pint jar, lasts a long time. So I might wait till there's like one jar left. When I bring that one jar downstairs, I go ahead and order more. Some stuff I turn over a lot faster, Uh, garlic powder, I, I don't even use garlic powder anymore. I use granulate, not a granulated, um, uh, minced dehydrated garlic. I use that because if I want powder, I just throw it in the spice grinder. Um, that gets turned over quick. I, I use that in almost everything I cook. There's garlic and I use the dehydrated garlic. Uh, dehydrated onions that turn over fast. Rosemary lasts a long time. A little bit of rosemary goes a long way. Black pepper I use a lot of, but it still goes a long time before you need more. So I make that decision on the fly, refill, vacuum seal up to the storage, and it just constantly rotates like that. And and that stuff will last years. And that's truly a store where you eat and we store, ongoing thing that enhances all the cooking that we do. And that means there's usually a good supply on hand for any length of time, like we never run out. We're never like, oh, I needed time for this and I don't have time, right? I don't have time for time. Anyway, um, so that's how I do that. Now, the blends. I usually do not make up large amounts of blends. I make that up on the fly. I'm cooking something. There might be a go-to blend that I always make, but a lot of times it's just like, huh, what do I want to do with this today? Like, this is going to be pork. 
Do I want to take it a little more spicy, a little more Asian? Do I want to take it a little more country rustic, like a country French thing? Am I gonna am I gonna pan fry it and then you know baste it with with its own fat and with some other mixed fats? I want to take it that kind of and make some kind of a sauce for it, take it to that like French level, or do I am I gonna grill it and I want it to have kind of a even though I'm not gonna smoke it, I want to take it to that kind of smoky, bring some cumin in it, some smoked paprika in it. Like I just figure that out and I'll make that up. But I almost never make um, exactly what I need because I don't know exactly what I need. And I, I'm there with pinches and teaspoons and stuff like that. A lot of times I'll use teaspoons because I want to do equal amounts of like three things and double the amount of two things. So I'll measure with teaspoons. I'll throw it in the grinder, grind it up, and I'll make that up. And I'll use it, and whatever's left over, I'll put in one of them same little jelly jars, and I'll label what it was and what I used it on. And then that's in there. And then, like, when I'm cooking something again, I'll go, you know, that was really good on pork. It'll probably be good on chicken. I've got enough there for this couple chicken chicken breasts. Let's go ahead and use that see how it comes out on chicken. That'll wipe it out. And I don't really have, like, a book somewhere with all of these blends in it. Maybe someday I should. Um, but I actually like the concept of I just open that cabinet and go, you know, everybody puts bay leaves and their stews and soups, but bay is a good flavor. Let's throw a bay leaf in that grinder and grind it to a powder. Let's take a bay leaf, some thyme, and some rosemary, and let's let's make a seasoning out of that with some salt and pepper for steak. See what that's like. All that was pretty good. You know, but maybe it would be better with something like beef rib. Oh, that actually is really great with beef rib. And you don't learn that unless you have that freedom to go. But, you know, I don't make up big amounts of mix. I just don't. Uh, that's why I have so many different options because I never am stuck with this, you know, quart jar of Jack's barbecue rub or whatever. I just, I don't do things that way. And I, I really think people are better off if they don't. All right, with that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Justin in Phoenix, Arizona. I have a question for you about chainsaws. I have a little over an acre in North Phoenix and will be felling and trimming up some small trees around the property. I will also be bucking up some 24-inch diameter firewood that I got from a pine tree on another property of mine. I had been looking at several models, including a Husky 455 and an Echo 590, but was wondering if you felt that these saws were too big for general purpose use around the house for firewood cutting. If you have any other suggestions for models, that would be great. Look forward to hearing your answer on the air. Thanks for all you do. Okay, so the Echo 590 and the Husqvarna 455, I functionally consider them equivalent. You probably do too. That's probably why you're down to those two. They're, they're basically commercial grade, but consumer priced. Um, somewhat larger chainsaws, 20 inch bars on them. The bar is the part that sticks out with the chain on it, by the way. Um, so, you know, Technically, you could handle 38-inch stock with it coming in, one on each side. There's no doubt you could handle a 24-inch tree. You're going to have to make two, two different cuts plunging from one side and the other. But, you know, it'll handle that big tree. But your question is, you know, I guess you probably want to know which one out of the two since you named them both. I don't care. I love Husqvarna. I have a Husqvarna uh, 440, which is kind of the next size down in chainsaws. I love it. Uh, it's got an 18-inch bar, a little bit smaller motor. It hardly ever runs anymore. I'll talk about that in a second. I have a Husqvarna tractor. Um, I was a steel snob for a long time. I grew up with, you know, 
you saved up to buy a steel chainsaw because they were the best of the best and the best of the best best, and everything else was garbage. And uh, I worked with a guy that, that cut trees professionally for a living, and I said, so I guess you, I had a, a saw that I had picked up that was pretty cheap. I said, I guess you'd think this is junk. It's not a steel. He goes, I don't give a damn. He goes, they're all good. It's all about the, the quality of the manufacturer that you buy. In other words, all the good manufacturers, Husqvarna, Steel, etc., uh, Echo, they make good chainsaws. And then they make mid-grade chainsaws, and then they make crap chainsaws. And his, his assertion was, if you buy you know, the, the highest quality out of a major manufacturer, they're all good. It's not that hard to make a chainsaw. And, and it kind of changed my viewpoint. And so I would, I would tell you that they're within 20 bucks of each other or something like that in cost when I looked them up, that whichever one you personally like better get it if you're going to go this way. Is it too big? They're not too big. Um, but you may find it not pleasing to use such a large, heavy chainsaw for a lot of your everyday, you know, rigmarole stuff. So one thing I would say is ask yourself this giant pine tree that you're going to buck up, is that going to be probably the only time that you're ever going to deal with stock that large? And if it is, you might ask yourself, self, do I know someone with a large bar, 20, 22-inch, 24-inch bar chainsaw who would let me borrow it for a day? Because if that's the case, then you might downsize that saw a little bit. However, having a large, heavy-duty, commercial-grade Chainsaw, and somebody's going to be like, they're not commercial grade. They're, they're there. They're there. I know they're not the top, top of the line for me either, but they're, they're damn solid. Um, it's a great tool to have. You never know when you'll need it, and if you have it, you have it, and if you need it, it's there. And that means that if it's five years from now and something really big needs cutting or some large amount of work needs to be done, smaller saws, electric saws will not run with these big saws. They just won't. However, If you're going to work for you know 30 minutes straight cutting of small stock, it's it wears you out. It, it really wears you out running these heavier saws, especially when it's quick cutting lots of it, versus you know working you know felling larger trees or what have you. So you might consider a couple options. One, I have links to both of the saws you asked for, so people want to take a look at them. I also have a link to the saw I own and use 90% of the time now, and my husband sits there on the shelf. It's the Oregon Power Now Cordless Chainsaw. It is not equivalent to any gas saw. I want to be clear about that. From a power or speed standpoint, it is not. What it is, is lightweight, fast, efficient, and you pull a lever and sparks fly out of it, and your chain's razor sharp. That's what it is. And for limbing trees, for cutting small stock and all, especially green trees, like where you really see the difference in the electric and the gas is dead wood. Dead wood is hard. It's much harder to cut. It takes longer. Uh, and it will wear out these, these battery power saws. DeWalt makes a good one. Uh, I can't think of that. There's a company that's Cobalt makes a decent one now. Um, Black Decker makes a shitty one, but it does work. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with Oregon. I own it, so I, I'm comfortable recommending it. That blade's always sharp. On green or wet wood, it cuts like butter. You get into the harder stuff, it's it's a lot harder to get through its life, especially like you know post oak and things like that. But you might the thing is it's kind of expensive. But 
best of the best worlds would be something like you're talking about, one of these Echoes or Huskies, and something like that, whether it's the DeWalt, whether it's the Oregon. I like the Oregon because of the Auto Sharp feature. It's worth paying more for the chains for, I promise you. The fact that you're sitting there with a file, and in three seconds my blade's razor sharp, is worth paying a little bit more for the chains, and they last damn long enough. So if you're going to be doing mostly smaller stock, you could look at that. The other thing you could look at is picking up this big, heavy saw for you know the good money, and there's a lot of stuff out there like the pulling pros and stuff that are like 14, 16-inch bar gas saws that are really lightweight. They're not junk. They're just not great, uh, but they sell for 100 bucks ish Walmart, what have you. And picking up something like that is a secondary saw. And using it for all that small, quick work. I I still would prefer cordless electric saw for that. But it costs three and a half to four times what a pull-in pro or something equivalent does. And the cheap uh, cordless saws are garbage. Don't even consider them. You'd be much better off with a pull-in pro or, or something equivalent. So the, those are my thoughts on it. It's not too big. It just will wear you out if you're going to be doing a lot of small stock cutting. If you're going to be doing a lot of slat, you know, busting slash off and doing uh, pruning and stuff. For pruning my trees, I love, love, love my Oregon Power now. It's so lightweight. It's so easy and it works so good. I use my reciprocating saws a lot for pruning as well, especially fruit trees because you can get a nice clean cut with it. Um, but as soon as you go up to like, You know, stuff that's about as big as your wrist, it, it really pays to have that electric saw. So I know maybe that's not the answer you're looking for because it's not clear and concise, but I would say either one's fine, and you can go with just that. And then why don't you, do, if you really want to do that and you have the budget for it, why don't you do that? And then if you decide it's a problem using a heavy saw all the time, then look for what's the best solution to that secondary cutting need, uh, I think is the best way to look at it. Because you can only decide for yourself. Let's take another one. This one on electric vehicles. Jack, this is just a comment about electric uh, vehicles. On this week's show, you were mentioning you mentioned about electric vehicles. Well, there's a company called Alta that has developed an electric dirt bike, and it is amazing what it can do. Uh, just to show you the technology, how it's progressing and what the future may be. Thanks. I will be brief on this one um, because I don't have a lot to add other than I think it's, it is cool. I, I, I have a link to the Alta website. I looked it up. These motorcycles are freaking badass what they can do. Um, they were built to compete in like the 250cc uh, world of like motocross, uh, and they kind of... <laughs> Own the shit out of anybody in it, honestly. Um, they have about a two-hour range is what I got out of their FAQ. I don't know how that would translate if it was a street bike. You know, would it be the same? Would it be longer? Would it be shorter? How would that translate to miles, etc.? But I honestly think, like, one of the places you're going to see major advancements, uh, even quicker than in cars, is motorcycles and scooters and things like that. And, and I'll tell you why. In America, it's the exception. In a lot of the developing Far Eastern countries, it's the rule that people use motorcycles and mopeds 
because they're more efficient, they're less expensive, uh, they fit on the small streets, you can get more of them on a road. You're, you know, what we think of traffic here is nothing compared to like parts of China and whatever. There's a huge market there to be exploited. And in a lot of ways, motorcycles lend themselves to becoming electric with current technology better than cars because they weigh so much less. So they need so much less, so much less power, especially if we're not worried about, you know, winning a motocross race and jumping across some dirt mound or something like that. Uh, and what we're more concerned with is getting from point A to point B over, let's say, 10, 20 miles commuter distance. Uh, and, and electric bikes can be incredibly fast, like dangerously uh, capable of acceleration. Uh, there's actually quite a bit of programming and tweaking that goes into a motorcycle so that when you when you throttle up with them, they throttle in an even linear model instead of just going all out and blowing you off the back of it or blowing the bike over or what have you. Um, it's not complicated, but it needs to be done right. Um, but yeah, check them out, and it's going to be interesting to see where electric vehicles go in the future. I, I think we're coming to an age where a lot of things that people thought was all fantasy are going to start becoming reality. The downside of motorcycles, because they're so much smaller, uh, they can carry less battery reserve, and, and that that you, you you know I think you'll see cars uh, continuing to extend range, and you might find motorcycles extend, 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 and plateau a lot faster. We'll see. Anyway, check out the Alta. It's pretty badass. Uh, it's one of those toys that every guy would look at and go, don't know if I'm going to buy one, but if I had one, I'd enjoy having it. <laughs> and uh, So check them out, the Alta uh, electric motorbike. Uh, let's take another one here on uh, socialism and disasters. Hey, Jack, I was cruising Facebook the other day, I noticed somebody posted a comment or a, a post in uh, the Survival Podcast forum on Facebook, and uh, it, it was something to the extent of, are y'all okay with using socialism to help the people in Texas? I, I'm in Texas, by the way. I'm north of North Texas, so I wasn't affected by the hurricane, but you know, it stewed on me. It, it, it ate on me for a while because, no, nah, I'm really not. Uh, a lot of people need help. No, I'm really not. And quite honestly, really ain't no need for the government down there. I think uh, if you look and see what's going on with the massive outpouring of help coming from the community, not just financially. I mean, there's, hey, like him or hate him, President Trump, million dollars, his own money, millions of other dollars. Everybody stepping up to the plate. You know what? For the most part, it's what happens every time. You know, we got our problems in this country, but in times of real disaster, we pull together and we help each other out. So, no, I'm not okay with using socialism to help the folks in Texas. And I'm in Texas. We got our own back as a country. I mean, first you got to understand, I, I, this is, again, this is like two months old. This is one that got kind of left behind in a speak pipe, which is another way you can leave me a message. You can go to the website, uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com, look at the center column and scroll down a little bit, and you'll see a thing that says leave a message on speak pipe. As long as your device has a microphone, you click a button there, leave a message, and it'll send it to me. Uh, but it works a little different than, uh, than the phone calls where I have to go dig them out. This one somehow got left behind for a couple months. 
Um, so this is when Hurricane Harvey was raging, not not the storm itself, but the aftermath. And CAC was deployed and all of that, and it was on your news media 24-7. And the, the, the person that posted it in the forum, if I remember right, this is the Facebook Survival Podcast Facebook forum, uh, where you guys interact with each other and me on a regular basis. The person that posted it wasn't making that case. What they had done is they had run across a meme made by someone from the social justice world pointing out the irony that all of these freedom-loving libertarians in Texas were now calling for federal aid, which was actually not being heavily done at all. Um, and if you look at the footage, even when government people are involved in all the rescues and all that went down there, like 90% of it was either private citizens or local officials. There wasn't a whole lot of Coast Guard. There was some Coast Guard action, but that was about it. And FEMA was all but useless to the immediate disaster relief, as they always are. And the main federal aid being asked for is to help the people whose homes were flooded that weren't in a floodplain but still had their homes destroyed by flooding. So they didn't have flood insurance because they didn't think they needed it because the place had never flooded in a 100 years, and now it was flooded, and the insurance companies play this game of, well, it wasn't really storm damage, it was flood damage, and you're not covered for that. All right. So that's what created the whole dynamic is basically you got a trolls out there that everything that happens, and it's on both sides, left and right, you know, they create these little memes, and, well, how socialism look now to help Harvey victims? Let's... Throw that shit to the side for a second. Take another look at the whole concept. Socialism is an involuntary system when used by the state. I am fine with socialism as an adjective. An example of socialism as an adjective might be that a group of us from this community might get together someday and decide, we'd like to own a piece of property together um, for recreation, hunting, bug out, whatever, and we want to create you know, survival podcast land somewhere in Texas. And 10, 20, 30 of us get together and we all put in $50,000 and we can buy a pretty nice piece of real estate for that. There's going to be a certain amount of taxes that need to be paid. So we all have a share that we pay for ongoing property maintenance and that would be taxes divided by number of people involved, uh, you know, any kind of maintenance and stuff that needs to go on. And then all of a sudden one day we decide we'd like a building on there. And we all look at it and say, yeah, we want a building. And then we all say, okay, well, that building's going to cost $10,000. Uh, there's 20 of us. Everybody's in for 500 bucks, And everybody's in. So we don't want to be in. Well, then we have to work out, like, are you going to be part? Are you can use the building or not? And we might decide, like, he's a good guy. He's just low on money right now. We'll make up the difference this time. I mean, we work that all out between ourselves. Or a guy says, I don't want to be part of this anymore, and we either buy him out collectively and reduce the total number of people on it, or we offer his, his, he can offer up his portion for share to another party we bring in. And everything that we do within that system is very socialist. It's also very voluntary. It's also very voluntary. Nobody made you buy in. Nobody told you you had to. Nobody shows up and goes, hey, these people over there need a building. We want 50 bucks from you to pay for it. What? What? Okay, But that's how government socialism works. So I would ask you, how much money has been extracted from the state of Texas and specifically the surrounding areas of the city of Houston and surrounding areas by the federal government over the last 100 years? 
hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars over a hundred years. So when the city of Houston says, hey, look, we want federal aid for this shit, it's socialism, but it's not socialism they agreed to. You extracted from them for the common good, so now when shit goes wrong, you expect reasonably that you would use some of what you extracted back in to fix it. And so you can't make the argument that socialism is good or that you're wrong for accepting use of it when my involvement in it was never voluntary in the first place. I didn't agree to this. The people of Houston didn't agree to this. None of us believe in this. Well, none of us who advocate for pure, true liberty believe there's any credence to this bullshit invisible social contract. They were, I never signed any social contract. I was born into it. When you're born into something without your approval, we call that freaking slavery. So this gets done in every walk of life with the liberty movement. Oh, look, he says he's not for socialism. But look, he went hunting in a national forest or a state forest or state game lands. You took my freaking money without my approval. You're damn right. I'm going to take back whatever I can get. Which shows the problem in the first place with the whole system. That's how everybody thinks. Well, I paid in. I should get back whatever I can get back. If it's more, so be it. It's designed to divide and conquer. And it does a very good job of it. But this bullshit about, well, they're using socialism to fix Houston. Shut up. They need socialism to fix Florida. Yeah. These idiots, when this was going on, they do the hell with them. They voted for Trump, you idiot. I think when people are suffering in that kind of situation and you bring politics in it, you need at minimum your ass kicked. I'm dead serious. But Jack, you're an anarchist and that's the use of force. Shut up. Shut up. There's a point where somebody's an asshole to the point they've earned a response. And sometimes that response is a good swift kick in the ass or more. That's, that's reality. It's freaking reality. And and just remember, when you see all this trolling shit, it's a very small number of people. A small number of small-minded people that can't defend their ideas that they put out. So they resort to these little childish bullshit things. And most of the time when you fact-check their shit, it doesn't add up. Now, I actually like memes. I make quite a few of them. Because I think they make people think. But... What you're doing should be based on facts and reality, not some kind of nonsensical crap. But am I okay using socialism to help people in a disaster? Well, if those people were pulled into socialism against their will, and they've been having their property and their money taken from them by force for a long time by a larger entity, and they now need help expecting that entity to repay some of what they've put in to help fix their problems, yes, I'm okay with it. I'm not okay with socialism, but since it's here, I'm okay using it when necessary to correct a problem because you've victimized those people for a hundred years or more, taking their property from them by force. You've put yourself in the position, the state put itself in the position of caretaker and justified the taking of property as such. Well... When time comes that it's needed, pony up. Absolutely. Now, am I okay saddling the rest of the country with the bill 
by going beyond what was going to be spent anyway. I'm really not. I think when you have a disaster, you cut all this other shit back to take care of the most pressing needs. That's how you run any company, any corporation, any well-run country. This is the budget. We have X dollars this year. Here's an emergency need. Well, then, what are all the things that get cut so we can... And then, you know what we might find out? We didn't need that shit in the first place. And then next year, the budget would be smaller. We could steal less money. That's crazy talk. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another one. This one, just this is one of my favorite questions of the year so far. Hi, Jack. This is Don from Maine. What do you suggest for a preparedness item as a housewarming gift for someone who isn't a prepper? I thought a blackout kit would be good, but I wondered what other ideas you might have. Thanks. On some levels, I guess it depends on how much you like them and how much you want to spend. For instance, when my uh, my son and daughter-in-law uh, got their first place, we got them a Berkey water filtration system because we figured our grandson and eventual granddaughter would be better off drinking good quality pure water. But that certainly is a preparedness item, and it means that if they're, uh, they get an announcement in their town that their water is not drinkable, they don't care, they can still use it. But you got to like somebody to give them a Berkey, right? <laughs> Expensive. Um, personally, I think you, you know, I mean, the first thing I thought of was an emergency weather radio. You know, those could be had nice ones for around 50 bucks. Uh, the Grundigs are kind of my favorite out of that world because it's a usable thing. You know, you can use it not just when there's a disaster, especially if it has a weather alert with it. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, but that is something like, you know where we keep ours? <laughs> we, we keep it in our blackout kit. And I think maybe the, uh, the idea of a blackout kit might be the best idea for what you're asking about. You might already have the best idea. Because I'm thinking like, you know, a four-pack of the E-Tech City Lanterns is like 20-something bucks. Like, so you got four lanterns, some, you know, chem lights... Uh, flashlights, some batteries, maybe even if you really like them, you set up some end loops and and, and and so that they can have some rechargeable batteries and show them how to use them for the remote control so they're using them all the time. Uh, so then it has a preparedness world and it has a real-time world. And I guess it depends on how much you want to spend. And I actually, when I got this question today, I was like, I was ready to spend some time and put together like the four best blackout kits I could all lined out with parts for like I don't know 40 bucks 100 bucks 150 bucks 200 bucks something like that and I went fool fool you do not have time for this shit and I love it like when the gun builds and all I love it man I'll sit there and I'll I'll line I I'll spreadsheet it out and all well use yours yeah but I maybe I can do better now you're gonna give me a confinement right like and like some of the stuff I have I've had for five years what's available now can I get a better deal on it You know, I love doing that. I don't have time this week. I think I might do a show next week on maybe like blackout preparedness and include with it, not next week, the week after the event, so two Tuesdays from now, um, that very thing. Like here's the items, here's how to put them together. You know, Stephen Harris has a lot of stuff like that on some of his websites, but consolidating it down to not like here's everything, but here's kit A, kit B, kit C, kit D, and try to build it modularly where we get from A to B by adding some items. Though I think that might not be perfect. 
and I'll tell you why. It's very op- very. I'm just thinking of options right now. I'm thinking I could go from A to B, and B might just have like one or two more things, but two or three things, and it might be the same thing that's in A, but a little bit more expensive and a little bit better. Now you could still modularize them out that way because two is one and one is none. Uh, but coming up with like the space they'd fit in, containers for them and all, I think it's really cool. We have these things. We basically our blackout kit has grown to like two things now, and they're about the size of a milk crate, but they fold up. They're made out of like vinyl, and uh, so that way you'd have two handles on them. You grab them, you pull them out, and you start hand stuff out. You know, some extension. You know, if you go if you if you go the route of battery backup. You know, within ours, we have some of the splitters and some extension cords and stuff like that. Um, inverter for the car. I mean, what? If, let's say you were willing to spend about two hundred bucks because this is a family member or something. Um, just kind of spitballing, like you know, uh, an inverter and and an extension cord and some twelve volt stuff and some splitters. And not only do you give them this house, let me show you how all this works. Let me show you how to, let's make sure it'll work because this should power your refrigerator in a blackout. This should be able to charge your chargeable back. Like, what a great idea. I think a lot of people are like, how do I get my fill in the blank into preparedness? If you're willing to make the investment in them because you care that much about them, the blackout kit might be the way forward. And I'm going to really put some thought into this. It might actually have to be three, like the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week which I'm not even sure how that works out anymore, uh, for me to really think about this. And to really like, because this is going to be, I'm going to get my old ass Excel spreadsheets out, and I'm going to play with that. But I love it. I love it. And we're coming up on Christmas. What What a great gift for the family member that's completely unprepared. At least they can handle a blackout. And I'll bet you, when they see it work, They see how it works, and it's all packed up and nice and all. All you got to let's go put, let's go find a place for it. And I mean, I would take it to the point of like, well, let's make sure that if this happened, like, so uh, you know, added a power failure light that's in that area. That's how we do it. So if the lights go out, you can move toward the light. You can go to the light, and the light has all the things you need to fix everything. Thank you. That is my favorite question. By phone, definitely, this year. Thank you for it, and I think we're going to have a great episode to go with it in the future. If you have ideas for this, I want to hear from you. Send them to me, TSPC, the subject line, like you always do, and just mention this this concept and tell me what your thoughts are about it. I might put two or three works weeks of work into getting this where I want it to be before I bring it back to you. But thanks again for it. Uh, next question about monetizing a blog and accepting cryptocurrency. Hi, Jack. My name is Nick from Indianapolis, and I'm calling to see how you would go about uh, monetizing a blog with cryptocurrency. So my details are, um, I just started a blog recently and am looking on how to monetize it in the future. As of now, I'm just trying to gain support for it and get people on it, but um, I would like to eventually accept cryptocurrencies, and I was wondering how to do that safely. I noticed that you... uh, Publish the addresses on your website for to receive it there, and I was wondering how you do that um, and verify transactions and all that on your end, and making sure that it's coming from who it says it's coming from exactly. I was curious about that, and then I was also wondering 
if there's any plugins that you uh, know of that you trust. I've heard about like BitPay and things like that and which one you might recommend if you're going to go that route. Uh, thank you. Um, I appreciate everything you do for this community and I think it's awesome what you're doing and just keep being great at it. Thanks, man. Okay, this this question really isn't a cryptocurrency question, but it kind of is. So let's let's start out there. Um, as far as accepting cryptocurrency and what I do, I just have addresses to various wallets that I uh, make available, and I don't make them real obvious. But I think there's a a, a misconception about security risk with cryptocurrency addresses. I, providing an address is only a risk if you're concerned with somebody knowing you got money. So if you didn't want the government to know you got money, for instance, you wouldn't want to make it available to figure out what address it was. Um, you can do things with a Jack's wallet that kind of mitigate that. Like, So every time you receive money with your Jack's wallet, it generates a new address so that the next time you request money, you can get it sent to a different address. So that instead of having that one address get payment over and over and over again, So occasionally I just go in and change the receiving address to a new one, uh, but the old one keeps working. And that's pretty much what I did. I just went to my Jack's wallet, picked six cryptocurrencies I was willing to accept, and put them up there. Now, let me say something about what people pay with when it comes to paying for MSB to give you an idea of what's the most dominant player. It's Bitcoin. People can say whatever they want about altcoins, and people can shit on Bitcoin all they want. It is the number one method people use to pay. I have probably gotten 90% of the, the payments made for MSB and cryptocurrency have been, in fact, I'd say probably 95% or 98% have been Bitcoin. Because uh, I get a few orders a, a month in, for Bitcoin, maybe, you know, maybe a couple a week on average. Um, and I think I was paid with Ethereum once. I think I was paid with Dash twice, Zcash once, and Litecoin two or three, maybe four times. And everything else has been Bitcoin. The reason I bring that up is if you want to accept cryptocurrency on your website and you want to do it as easy as possible and you want other ways of accepting money, then I would advise you to look at Stripe for your merchant processing, for you know Visa card, MasterCard, all that stuff. Um, and at, at this point, I'm irritated enough with PayPal that I would say over PayPal. There's good reasons to take PayPal, but if you want to be able to sell stuff, probably the best merchant account you can get set up with quickly right now is Stripe, S-T-R-I-P-E, Stripe.com, and they have a feature. You click a button, and it'll let you take Bitcoin, and it'll make the conversion. If you're selling something for $49.99, it'll get the current price of Bitcoin, convert it, give that person an address, they send you money, boom, done. Coinbase will works about as easy as PayPal for accepting, if, but you, you can only accept Bitcoin. You can't accept also cash um, or a credit card, right? You only accept Bitcoin with, with Coinbase, but basically you put a button on there and it, you can set it up as a subscription, whatever. It'll do the currency conversion, all that too. Uh, so both of those would be your easiest ways to do that. But what you're really asking me about is monetizing a blog. Because I assure you, you do not care if you are running a proper business, whether somebody pays you in Bitcoin or with a Visa card or with PayPal account. You care that you get money because that's how you stay in business and grow your business. So I was doing some research, and I think a great resource for any of you out there that want to, to make money with a blog, whether – because see, 
Survival Podcast is a blog. It just its primary medium of publication is a podcast distributed by a blog. There's a lot of people doing V blogs or video blogs, but if they're smart, they don't just put their shit on YouTube. They put their shit on YouTube and they embed it in their blog and they build an email list. And I'm going to tell you that the most important thing you can do when it comes to making money with your blog is build an email list. Because it's how you bring people back over and over again. It's how you come across something and reach them and sell to them. It's how you develop... Um, if you're smart, you know, you develop little free courses that they can get and you, you drop it into your autoresponder once and, hey, get my free course on how to blah, 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 blah. And then they put that in there and they become subscribed to your main list, but they also maybe every three days after they do that, they get this little email that tells them this one little piece of information and that creates value. That's your database. So you have to be building an email list. I personally recommend a Weber. But I found this company... Um, that runs a blog called Pinch of Yum, as it, as it sounds like it is a food blog. But like many very successful blogs, and this is a very successful blog, they went into the business of also telling people how to become bloggers. And um, that became a piece of their income. And one of the things I think that's the reason they originally did this was to, to, to make sure that you understood that they were successful. And they started putting out income reports. And every month they put out Up until November last year, they put out a report, all of their income, all of their expenses, and all their website traffic. This is data that most successful bloggers would not give away to the public. They did this up till November of last year. In December, they made the decision to stop providing the information, but they left the archive so you can still see it. So if you dig through their years and years and years of income, you'll find all different ways they've made income, and you can evaluate those sources. And even if those sources aren't the best anymore, because if you go back five, six years, there's new sources that were better, you can figure out things like them, and I think it'll give you a tremendous amount of ideas. It'll also give you an idea like, well, what's what does it take to make the kind of income they did? Because their one income source alone in November last year was $54,000. Um, and it was a service that does distributed advertising call, called uh, AdThrive. AdThrive. Uh, they did twenty-two, fifty-two thousand in AdThrive, twenty-two thousand in sponsored content. They have something listed as Bluehost, fifty-one seventy-five. But it says this is income that comes from a page where we show people how to start a food blog in three steps. Amazon Associates they did forty-seven hundred bucks. I'm rounding them to the even numbers. Swoop, whatever the hell that is, they did uh, thirty-one hundred. Ad Thrive Video, so that's Ad Thrive back there again, three grand. Uh, Tasty Food Photography, twenty two hundred bucks. Gourmet Ads, twelve hundred bucks. Savorn, three hundred sixty nine dollars. How to Monetize Your Food Blog Ebook, one hundred sixty bucks. Genesis Theme, one hundred thirty nine bucks. Elegant Themes, one hundred twenty four bucks. I guess they get paid to refer people to buy themes. Uh, Active Campaign, fifty bucks, and uh, A Weber is an affiliate, fourteen dollars and forty cents in income. Um, here were their expenses though. This is like 54,000. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Staff salary and contractors, 20 grand. Studio expenses, four grand. Food expenses, 1500 bucks. So it's still quite profitable, right? These guys are doing well. Apple, I don't know what the expenses are, 1200 bucks. Travel, 600 bucks. You can read the rest. Ebook affiliates, uh, $500 that they pay people to sell their books for them. Which means they are giving their affiliates, this is interesting, 
That's why I like looking at stuff like this. So they, they made, in selling their e-books, where the hell is that now? Uh, $160, but they paid out $500 in affiliate commissions. So clearly that's a lead generation tool, qualified lead generation tool for them. Uh, you could read the rest. Their PayPal fees are only $138, and they don't have any other uh, fees. So I, I think they're not actually doing a lot in direct sales. Uh, my Amazon fees are, or my a, a PayPal fees are a lot more than $138 a month. Um, and I don't have anywhere near $50,000 worth a month of income. That's, that's a nice problem to have, I guess. But what I, you can dig through this, and you get a lot of insight. But what did it take them to, uh, to generate that kind of income? Well, their, you, their sessions, which is how many times somebody came there and hang out and did something, 3.2 million, uh, 2.3 million of those were unique users, and a total of 4.2 million page views. So you can see, like, those numbers are doable, but what it takes to get there. But that also can say, well, what could I expect to do with these types of programs if I could do a half a million? Uh, you know, uh, page views a year. You can work that out, and you figure out where these different uh, monetization platforms start to make sense for you. But also understand, like, it's a well done blog. That's why they're paying people twenty grand a month in salary um, to do a lot of the work and the contracting work and stuff on the blog to make it flow well, to look very professional, uh, high level photography, things like that. Uh, they did stop releasing these, like I said, in November of last year. They put this big sob story up about why. I'll tell you why, because it costs a lot of time and a lot of effort to do. And it's there, and there's enough of it now to prove that they are what they say they are. And if I was doing it, I mean, I would personally charge a premium fee to even see this information. I, I would make it some kind of an upgrade to have access to that Um Because I know how much work it takes for them to put it all out that way. So anyway, I think you can learn a lot from that. Monetization of a blog, I think you really have to start, which way are you going to start from? It sounds like you're starting from, I want to go blog. Okay, then you blog, you build up a reader base, and you find products that fit into it. The other way to do it is to have a business and use the blog to build up the business. So, for instance, we had an author that, that asked a question earlier this week, and she was like, well, how do, I, how do I build up for selling my book? So we blog about things that are about the book, but we also blog about things that are related to the theme of the book and the life of the author. I, I will caution you guys to be careful with one thing with blogging. It is so easy, and I see it out of this audience so much, Another prepper blog, another prepper blog, another prepper blog, another prepper blog, or another homesteading blog, another homesteading blog, another homesteading blog. You can do that. It's okay. But unless you come up with some unique angle, some unique level of presentation, you are highly in danger of pedaling a bike that goes nowhere, basically becoming white noise in the background. Because there's so much content about this. I'm not discouraging you from doing it. Because even if you don't become successful with it, you'll learn so much that you can apply to something else. But the reality is, what I just said is true about, like, if you give me a hundred niches, they probably all are that way. Food, cooking, uh, do-it-yourself, uh, 
automotive. And Charles Sandville is very successful with what he's doing. He has a hook. You have to have a hook. Uh, this pinch of yum site, their hook is high quality, unique dishes, great photography. You look at it, you want to eat it. It's very shareable. It's something people are going to put on Facebook and Pinterest and stuff like that. It's designed to make all of that easy. It's very, very well done. That's kind of their hook. And so I think one of the problems is a lot of people will look at a blog like, like Survival Podcast. I think, well, that's good enough for Jack. Jack built his blog 10 years ago. Jack has a lot of traction because he's been around 10 years. You look at something that's even older, like Survival Blog by James Wesley Rawls. Um, no disrespect to Rawls or his blog, but I believe if he came out with that blog today for the first time, and it looked like it did, it used the technology that it did, it used the monetization that it did, it was, it was using the technology that it uses, that it, it was, you know, what it, what it is today, but came out of the gate that way, um, I, I, I don't think it could be successful. James wrote, you know, uh, a very success, Patriot survived the coming collapse, multiple books after that, and this blog has been online. I, I, I have no idea how long longer than, than me. Uh, well, looking at his header on it, I just pulled it up right now while I'm talking about it, since 2005. The expectation of a reader of a blog in 2005 was far different than the expectation of somebody finding a blog for the first time in 2017. Rawls, since 2005, me, since 2008, we've built up, and we're very blessed to have followers that share our stuff, that tune in every day, that come back. I would say being a podcast is what makes my site successful. I would say my site, if you look at my site, for all that I know about internet marketing, um, I just needed a site up and running. If, 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 if my site was just a blog, it would be tough for my, and I think my site, looks better, flows better, does more, is using better technology than Rawls's blog, and more than three years better. It's not just when I started. I've, I've continued to make it a little better as we go. But if I were going to come out today with a podcast and come out of the gate with one in the world of preparedness and all of the things I talk about, my site would look a lot differently. The way that it monetizes things would be a lot different. I would still go with a member's model because I think it works really well with the way things I've, the way I've done things. But you'd have to use kind of a different approach to create a hook. Remember, when I started Survival Podcast, there were no podcasts on preparedness, self-reliance, permaculture, none of this stuff. Go, I mean, there was nothing. There were like three preparedness podcasts. Between the three of them, they had like five episodes. They were terrible. One guy I listened to, he's like, water is very important. When you start preparing The first thing you need to do, make sure you have enough water. And the way you figure that out is you figure, I, I swear to God, I was like, I, I'm done, can't listen to it. So I came into a different landscape than you would come in today with a blog or a podcast or a video product. And we built our businesses, I'm not saying it was easy, but we built them on the reality and the technology of the time. Today, you have to build it on the reality of the technology 2017. And there's so many people, I think, go out there and they look at a blog and they say, well, this blog's very successful. I'll make my blog look like this blog. 
well, then you're just an also-ran. So you, you have to think about, like, what is it that is unique about you so that you built – this is it, it sounds like it's about monetization, but you have to have the successful platform of content creation to monetize anything. Because I'm back to what I gave advice out earlier this week. The most valuable thing – and, God, guys, this is the golden rule of online marketing. The most valuable thing – that people have today isn't money, it's time. It takes a lot, like I don't care if a person, let's say a person makes $20 an hour. It's easier to get them to give you $20 than it is to get, to get them to give you an hour. Especially if we're going to take an hour a day every day for a week. It's hard. You have to constantly be innovating, you have to be attentive, You have to be, you know, somewhat nurturing. You have to be inspiring. You know, you have to have some kind of a hook. So another way to approach that is don't take an hour. Take five minutes. That works for some people. Some people take two hours. You've got to figure out what works for you. And you've got to be consistent. And don't so much worry about, well, like, because, like, okay, what product are you selling? You're worried about taking cryptocurrency. You don't have a product yet. Right? And by the way, when you have a blog and you call in and ask a question on a very successful show with a lot of people, give your domain name. I won't be offended by it. Always give your domain name. Always give your do Make sure your domain name's in the signature of your email. Always be distributing your domain name. Always be distributing your domain name. One more time, always be distributing your domain name. All right, guys, well, we've worn it out, and uh, as you can hear, yeah, my voice is back, and that brings us to our item of the day, and it's a product that I said I would tell you more about after using it for about a week, and I've been using it a little bit longer than that now. I'm very impressed with it. It's made by a company called Gaia Herbs. It is a throat spray made with echinacea, golden seal, and propolis, and I believe it really helps shorten the duration of my you know, current head cold and my laryngitis, and laryngitis is like a just a horrible thing for a guy who makes a living with his voice. I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the three uh, ingredients in it. And remember, I am not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV like that Dr. Oz guy who pretends to be a doctor on TV every day. Uh, yeah, I know he's an MD. He's still pretending to be a doctor. Anyway, uh, so these are all like – so. I'm not prescribing anything. I'm not making any health claims. I'm not claiming, any, claiming anything cures or prevents or treats disease because the government will not let me do that without saying you're a bad guy and need to go into a bad place. All right. But here's what other people say about it. This comes from The Lancet. Uh, echinacea has been shown in some studies to boost immune response, reproduce the occurrence of the, reduce the occurrence of the common cold and increase white blood cell count. And the source on that? The Lancet. Uh, golden seal has been shown to have numerous immune-enhancing effects in clinical studies. Uh, however, in relation to the product, the most important component is likely golden seal contains phytochemicals and alkaloids that produce a powerful astringent effect on mucous membranes, reducing disease-causing causing inflammation and has antiseptic effects. So if your throat's swollen and you use something that's an astringent that reduces inflammation, of the mucous membranes, and also helps prevent uh, bacteria from growing, that's a good thing, all right? And then propolis, 
Uh, is a proven antibiotic and antiseptic properties may also have antiviral and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. Source on that's drwhale.com. On Golden Seal, my source is draxe.com. Both of those are in my uh, my write-up with links to the source. Even WebMD has great things to say about propolis, though. Propolis is bee glue, I guess. you. It's usually reddish, and when you take a beehive apart and it's like held together uh, with sticky, gooey stuff, that's propolis. If there's a hole and they don't like it because of where it is and they seal it up, they seal it up with propolis. That's that's what it is. So you imagine if bees are producing something like that to seal up their home, they don't want funguses, disease, bacteria either. So evolution helped them develop all these properties. So here's what WebMD, who's not exactly friendly to alternative stuff, has to say about propolis. Propolis has a long history of medicinal use, dating back to 350 B.C., the time of Aristotle. Greeks used it used propolis for abscesses. Assyrians used it for healing wounds and tumors. The Egyptians used it for mummification. It still has many medicinal uses today. Um, propolis is used for canker sores and infections caused by bacteria, including tuberculosis, by viruses, including flu, H1N1 swine flu, and the common cold by fungus and by single-celled organisms called protozoans. Propolis is also used for cancer of the nose and throat, for boosting the immune system, and for treating gastrointestinal problems, including heliobacter pylori infection and peptic ulcer disease. Propolis is also used as an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory agent. Not exactly a bad thing. These three together, uh, echinacea, golden seal, and propolis, are just like a, a trio of immune-boosting and antiviral, antibacterial uh, superstars, in my opinion. Anyway, as they say, the proof is in the pudding, and uh, I think you could hear the results this week over a few days of using this stuff uh, and giving my throat some rest. I used to use a different brand that was mostly just Echinacea. It's not available anymore, and I had run out of it. I really think I would have been better off if I had you know, kind of gotten on this stuff much quicker And what I'm going to be doing is using it once or twice a day through the entire cold and flu season. This time of year, I get this problem. I think it's a combination of doing so much speaking, because I do a lot this time of year, so much travel, because I do a lot this time of year, workshops and being exposed to so many different people. You know, Basically, uh, maybe my immune system's not what it used to be, even though I eat better than I ever did, because I never see people anymore. And all of a sudden, you know, you go from seeing like three people a week Uh, to being surrounded by hundreds of people multiple times throughout this time of year. And it just, it's everybody, I think, gets more of it. But uh, I'm going to use it and see how, how it works more as a tonifying thing to reduce or, or suppress this. And I, I don't know if that'll work. But I'm going to tell you with the herbs that are in it, the price that it is was like 18 bucks for a, tw a two pack uh, of the one ounce bottles. Uh, and as effective as I feel that it's been, And I mean, the effect is, is somewhat immediate when you have a sore throat. It's not like a chloroseptic thing where it numbs it, but you can talk, you know, that, that's nice. And it does reduce that scratchy, that where it makes it constantly feel like you need to cough. Uh, I think it belongs to your preps. Uh, it's, it's, it, I will say for you guys with kids, it may be a little bit difficult to get them to use it. It does burn a bit. And it burns because it's like, it's a tincture. So it's made with alcohol. So it's like 60% alcohol. Which I also thought you needed to know because some of you, I don't drink alcohol at all. Um, three sprays of this stuff's not going to get you drunk. It's not going to have any real effect on the body. It's delivering the concentrated herbs. But check it out. It's again, it's made by Gaia Herbs, Echinacea Golden Seal Propolis Throat Spray. Best thing I've found since my other brand went away. 
Uh, you can learn more about it at tspaz.com. And remember, at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast. You'll find all our Amazon reviews there. But you can just get on straight on over to Amazon from there and help the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. Our song of the day today, we just completed the uh, Bad Out of Hell album by Meatloaf. And, uh, of course, all of those songs are written by Jim Steinman. So we decided to kind of follow it up with an encore uh, of a song by Jim Steinman himself. This is from 1981, and it's from his album Bad for Good. And it's the title track, which is Bad for Good. What you'll hear in this song is a continuation of the theme uh, on kind of the Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. Bad for Good, Lost Boys and Golden Girls is another song on this album. And Jim, I think, was highly influenced by this. Again, the, 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 the musical play that Genesis uh, Bad Out of Hell was called Neverland and based on this. And there's a lot of that feeling throughout the whole Bad Out of Hell album because three of the songs are straight out of there and the other ones kind of play in with it as I showed you the other day, even some of the lines in the other songs come from that play. But what Steinman said about um, kind of Peter Pan, he said, it's always been one of my favorite stories, and I've always looked at it from the perspective that it's a great rock and roll myth because it's about, when you get right down to it, it's, it's about a gang of lost boys who never grow up, who are going to be young forever. And that's about the perfect image of rock and roll, the best one I can think of. Um, so, you know, that is a myth, right? But do you not think we believe it when we're teenagers? And I, I don't know if teenagers today do. I, I, my, my farm man, Cody, God, he's, he's such a great kid. I feel like he's made so much project, progress in a year because I screw with this kid all the time. Because when he first started here, if I screwed with him, he like seized up. Like he was going to cry or something. And I mean gentle stuff that I do with my grandson that doesn't bother him. You know, this pro product of this generation of just being so uptight. Um, I think school has done a lot of it to you guys that are in that age group. But last night, like, he put the wrong label on a card of eggs. And he was like worked up about it when Dorothy said, hey, that's, those aren't mini eggs. Those are regular eggs. You need to put them in a different carton. It's like 12 eggs. It takes 10 seconds to swap them over. It was no big deal. And I wonder, have, like, have teenagers, late teens, early 20s, lost this attitude, which was in some ways destructive, but I, you know, I was talking about it with the whole Bat Out of Hell album. It's what we grew up with. Guys that are 40 and 50, gals that are 40 and 50, you remember running around in old cars, getting a car that was made for five people, And piling 14 people in it so everybody could go somewhere. And the damn wheels were near rubbing the inside of the, the fender wells. And stuff like that. You know, just being kids. And I think there is some value in kind of that cocksure attitude of, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And I think one of the reasons that today's music, even though it's some of its really good music lacks something, it lacks That, it lacks that. It's too studio. It's too bubblegum. But there's always been studio bubblegum music, going back to the 30s. But what the stuff that's even not too studio and not too bubblegum lacks, it lacks this spirit. I'm going to live forever. It might be a myth, 
But I think there's a place in our life for a little bit of it so that we'll take those risks while we're young and we still can. That's what this song is for me. Bad for good. Jim Steinman, 1981. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. The sea is whipping the sky. The sky is whipping the sea. You can hide away forever from the storm, but you'll never hide away from me. The icy cold will cut us like a knife in the dark, and we may lose everything in the wind. But the northern lights are burning and they're giving off sparks. I want to wrap myself around you like a winter skin. You know I'm onto your scent. We're near the end of the chase. Take a look out the window and I'll be there in the night. Oh, your love is so close that I can almost taste it. The cold will cut us like a knife in the dark and we may lose everything in the wind. Around you like a winter skin You've been living your life Like a girl in a cage And you whisper when I want you to shout And I'll never know why You wanna go on sleep And when there's nothing left to dream about I thought you better remember If it's something I want Then it's something I need I wasn't built for comfort I was built for speed If it's something I want Then it's something I need I wasn't built for comfort I was And I never know why you wanna go